If you would, remain standing and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. Now we're going to be in John chapter 9 today, but for our reading, we're going to begin in John's prologue. John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Now, as I was preparing to preach this morning, my, uh, one of my children read through my sermon and informed me that I needed to lighten it up a little bit. So, uh, here you go. Here's my attempt to lighten it up. A chicken goes to a pig. He says to the pig, pig, let's open a breakfast restaurant and we'll serve bacon and eggs. The pig turns to the chicken and he says, we can't do that. It wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be fair because while you're invested in this venture, I'm committed to this venture. Okay, you get it? Eggs, chicken doesn't die, bacon, pigs, gotta go. Oh, now you got it, okay. So this morning... Let's use that little parable as an example. Let's not be those who are just involved this morning. Let's not be those who come into a room and gather with others and let everything float by us and then we get up and leave and go to lunch. Let's not just be involved this morning. Let's be committed. Let's be committed to hearing the word preached. Let's be committed to taking in the word, reading the word as it's being preached, and then letting that be applied to us and change our lives. So, you can turn over now to John chapter 9. I am thankful to be able to gather with you here at Grace. Every week we get to come and we get to pray the word and sing the word and hear the word and read the word. Our task this morning is not to take these means of grace lightly. Let's not take them for granted. Let's ensure that the light that is coming through the Word of God, the the light that we just read about in John chapter 1, let's let it come and infiltrate our lives and push out the darkness. Let's not be consumed by the darkness that's around us. So in chapter 9 this morning, 
we come into a situation as we've been walking our way through John, maybe you've seen an increasingly difficult time that Jesus was having in his confrontation with the people that he ran across. By the time we even get to the end of chapter 8 last week, we see a very stark situation from the one that we would expect after having read the prologue in chapter 1. It was something that we were warned about back in chapter 1. This word was in the beginning. He was with God. He himself was God. And when he says, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am, at the end of last week's section, before Abraham was, I am, the very people that claim to be the people of Abraham, who claim to be the followers of God, picked up stones in order to kill Jesus. The world, as John told us back in chapter 1, verse 10, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So in our passage this week, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9, we step into the sixth of seven signs that John organizes this first part of the gospel around. You've noticed, but there are seven miracles done in John, and this is going to be the sixth one. In this miracle, in this chapter, we meet a person who did not recognize Jesus because he was blind. Jesus stands in front of him and he doesn't know who he is at the beginning of the story. He had no reason to know who Jesus was. He could not see Jesus, but in our story today, he was the only one who ended up seeing Jesus for who he was. So let's walk through this story together and learn from him. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. So as who was passing by, as Jesus was passing by. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? And some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, though, I am the one. So they asked him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and he told me, Go to to Siloam and wash. So I went, and I washed, and I received my sight. Where is he then? They asked. I don't know, he said. So this chapter is broken up into five sections. You've got the sign, the miracle that's being done here. We've got the man being interviewed by the Pharisees. Then we have his parents being interviewed by the Pharisees. Then we have the man coming back for a second time to be interviewed. And then we have Jesus interacting with the man and some of the Pharisees at the end. So in this first section, here in verse 1, we see Jesus was passing by. If you remember at the end of last week, he was in the temple. He was confronting the Pharisees, and the Pharisees confronted him back with stones. And he went out of their midst. And as he's leaving the temple, it seems that he walks by this man on the street. So imagine what Jesus has just gone through, your own people trying to kill you, and as he's walking by, he encounters this blind man. 
And so his disciples, his followers, turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Why is this guy this way? Can you tell us? Now, this sounds really odd to us, but to a Palestinian Jew at the time, sin and suffering were inextricably linked. If you saw someone suffering, it was because there had been sin in their life. If you have ever read the book of Job, you'll recognize some similarities here between the way the disciples were thinking and the way Job's friends were thinking. And to a certain point, we can agree with that. Suffering, if it's in the world today, it comes about because ultimately it is the fruit of the tree of sin. And if sin had not entered the world back in the garden, then suffering would not be known now. But Jesus answered them, and takes him to a different direction. Instead of trying to pinpoint what's going on, why is this man blind, why was he born blind, he goes a different direction. He says in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, this is not a comment on their perfection. He's not saying that they were perfect and this guy is just blind. Instead, he's going on a different path. He says, he's not coming on the holiness of this man or his family. Jesus is simply saying that this man's blindness, instead of highlighting the moral shortcomings of him and his family, had a higher purpose to display that day. There were two reasons that this man could have been born blind. One was sin and the effect of sin. Another was that God had something bigger planned this day for this man. He says, this came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. Now, we don't know exactly how old this man was, but his parents later say that he's of an age to be accountable, so he's at least 13, likely older than that. God was using this man's life every day of not being able to see, every day of bumping into things and not being able to have a family or provide for a family. He used all those sufferings through his life to better highlight what's about to happen to him. In the, in the context of the darkness that he had lived through, the light that's going to shine through Jesus is going to show up so much more brightly. Maybe this sounds odd to you. That God would plan such a thing. We like to think God is good, and he is. And we like to think God is just, and he is. And sometimes we like to think, therefore, God must do everything for us that we want, and we, he can only do good for us and allow good into our life. Is God then behind our, this man's suffering? Is he behind our suffering? Some of us, like this man, were born with physical maladies. Others have experienced awful things in your life that are still coming up with emotional turmoil that you're trying to be healed from. Wouldn't you like to know that, as the disciples were learning about this man in this passage, wouldn't you like to know that God had a purpose behind the suffering? Well, know this, brothers and sisters, he does. Now, it may not be that his purpose is for the world to see you get healed, as it was with this man. This man was going to serve it today, centuries later, Millennia later, we are reading the story and hearing about the goodness that happened to this man. But that may not be what God has for us to have that same story play out. It may be that God receives glory because by your continuing to be faithful in the midst of suffering, 
like we read in Sunday school this morning in 2 Corinthians 12, like Paul. In the midst of the suffering, you being faithful, that you are being perfected from one degree of holiness to another. That could be what God is doing in you right now, in your suffering. Like Paul, we might be suffering with a purpose. We often, though, don't get to see the final result. This man is going to see this day why he was suffering all his life. But many of us aren't going to get to see that. But we know because of God's word, because the light that he has shown into our darkness, we know that God is good and he is trustworthy. So we can lean on that as we long for answers. So Jesus in verse 4 goes on. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus' very presence in the world had brought that life who was the light of men from back in earlier in John. He brought that life who was the light of men into the world. And as long as he was in the world, then life kinds of things were going to be happening and light kinds of things were going to beat back the darkness as long as he was there. Remember what John the Baptist said back in chapter 1 that we read earlier. Jesus was the true light that gives light to everyone. And in particular, on that day, Jesus was shining a broad stream of light into the darkness of this man's experience. And so now Jesus does something, again, strange to us. He, I don't know, I don't think this was a homeopathic thing to do, but he spits onto some dirt and he makes some mud and he puts it on the man's eyes. And Jesus tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And the man goes and he washes and he comes back able to see. Now, was this creation kind of activity happening in his life? Was this the, like, God made man from the dust of the ground? Was this Jesus making eyes for this man that can see? I mean, perhaps that's it. We're not told that exactly. But in something that Jesus was doing there, even if it was just the fact that he was doing something externally to this man so that his internals could work and he'd be able to see, this is a miracle by any account. This isn't something that happens, does it? We don't expect this kind of thing to happen. No one expects this kind of life change. The man's neighbors and acquaintances sure didn't expect it. Upon seeing him, they had the same questions that we all would have had. Isn't this the guy that was begging? Since this isn't a thing that happens, some of them were trying to convince themselves, no, this, this isn't that guy. But the whole time the guy's over there saying, yes, it's me. I am the one. Now what you're going to notice as the story progresses is that the man's faith and then the resulting boldness that comes out of it begins to grow. We don't see him at the beginning of the story being a street preacher. We don't see him being a theologian. We don't see him being one who was really bold. He didn't even know who Jesus was. But as the story progresses, his faith begins to grow and his boldness begins to grow. Not because he's a really good or smart guy. It's about what he had experienced. He was blind and now he could see. So the neighbors begin trying to explain away the situation. And he says, nope, I'm the man because the root of his faith was founded on what he knew to be true, what he had experienced. So they asked him in verse 10, 
How were your eyes open? He responded, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. So the obvious next question is this, that they ask, well, then where is this man who did this? They want to see the one who can do this kind of thing. This isn't an everyday kind of thing. But the man doesn't know, and so we move to the next phase of the story. In verse 13, they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was the Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them, I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? There was a division then among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He is a prophet, he said. So the people want answers and they don't know who to go to except the religious authorities because this seems like a religious kind of thing. So they take the man to the Pharisees and John gives us an important bit of information that Jesus had healed the man on the Sabbath. So now we begin to see the juxtaposition that John is making between this healing and the one back in chapter 5, which was also the healing of a paralytic man on the Sabbath. That's when, Jesus, when the Jews began persecuting Jesus. So we're back to the same situation. People want answers about this healer who heals on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees want answers too. So they begin the investigation asking how he got his sight, and the man relays the story to them. And they hear the man's stories, and the Pharisees now split into two camps as they try to make sense of what was happening. One camp says there's no way that this man is from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. They argued from the basis of the law. If someone was God-sent, then he or she had to keep the Sabbath law, or in this case, the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. The Pharisees' interpretation of the law was that one of their little rules was that you can't knead on the Sabbath, and that's what Jesus does as he's making the mud. And so these guys, arguing that he broke the law because he did this on the Sabbath, say that he can't be from God. But the other camp looked at the situation from a bit of a different angle. They argued based on the incredible results of what happened. How could Jesus heal this man if he was a sinful man, meaning that God wasn't with him? These two logical differences caused a division among the Pharisees. So in order to get more information to try to come to a unified answer, they dive back into questioning the man. Verse 17, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Now, the man had been sitting there listening to the two arguments of the Pharisees. And based on what had happened to him and based on what he heard from these religious leaders, he comes to the only conclusion that makes sense. He's a prophet. Obviously, he's from God. Look what he did to me. No one who wasn't from God could do this to me. Therefore, he must be a prophet. Again, we see as he goes through the story, his faith and understanding are growing and his boldness as well. So we move on to the next phase of the story. They call in the parents of this man. The Pharisees don't want to admit that the formerly blind man's conclusion was the most plausible answer, so they pivot to a different line of argumentation. Maybe the man wasn't blind at birth, after all. Maybe he became blind later in life and they can make a case for a lesser kind of miracle. Maybe Jesus just knew the trick for this guy to see. So to get the answer, they call on his parents and begin questioning him. In verse 19, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? You can see that the Pharisees are setting a tone of intimidation. 
Later, we we're even told that they had circulated the word that if anyone confessed Jesus as the Messiah, that that person would be banned from the synagogue. Now, the parents obviously loved their son, as any of us would. But being put out of the synagogue was not a small thing in the life of a Palestinian Jew of this day. The synagogue system, if you know what it is, was put in place after the Babylonian captivity of Judah. They went off to Babylon. They were separated from the temple. How are they going to worship God? How are they going to have religious, religious cohesion among them? And so the synagogue system was formed. They would gather. They would sing psalms together. They would hear the word taught together, the word from the Torah, and they would pray together. They had a whole system in place. They would have an end with a priestly blessing. But it was much more than simply a removal here from a religious gathering. It wasn't like church discipline for the first century that they were being threatened with. They were being removed from an entire life that they had known. The first century Jewish culture was not like our own. It's akin, in a lot of ways, to more of an Asian or Middle Eastern culture, where you live in the community and to live in the community is only through your relationships with others, including your family and neighbors. So some of you know that we used to live in Central Asia. And we saw often this kind of thing happening. The biggest concern when people were looking to profess their faith through baptism wasn't the leaving of Islam. It was, what are we going to do when our family shuns us? Because there, for you to live, you had to have connections with your family and your neighbors. And when that was shut off, you couldn't survive. You had no job. You couldn't get a loan. You couldn't sleep on someone's floor. You were homeless. You were jobless. You were penniless. This is something that believers right now in Central Asia and Middle East and Africa, they're dealing with this right now. And so this is something that was very important to them. And so they're afraid, understandably afraid. So with that in mind, do have some mercy on the parents in this story when they don't make a clear confession. They obviously know something miraculous had happened. She had nursed a blind baby, right? She knew that he was blind. The, the father had spent time walking his son through the streets to get him where he needed to go. He knew that he was blind, and now he sees they know it's a miracle, but they are fearful. In verse 20, they, they answered, We know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he now sees. We don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. So the Pharisees do that. They call the man back in for a second time. The Pharisees here were in a pickle. You know what a pickle is? Not the kind you eat, but in baseball. There's guys stealing bases between first and second. The first baseman gets the ball and he throws it to the second baseman to try to get him. And they're running back and forth trying to get the guy out. The Pharisees were in a pickle. All of their investigation up to this point had clearly shown that Jesus was the cause of this formerly blind man now seeing. It was incontrovertible. And further, that this man's summation of Jesus was also true, that he was a prophet. But on the other side of the pickle was the fact that Jesus had broken their understanding of the Sabbath. Now, that's not the Sabbath law that was taught in the Old Testament, but it was their understanding coming through the Mishnah. 
and this problem they could not abide. So they go down a different line of, they call it questioning, but it wasn't questioning, it was intimidation. They call the man back in for a second round of questioning. In verse 24, give glory to God. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. So admit it. We know this. So give glory to God and you admit it too. Now, ironically enough, the man was indeed giving glory to God because what he was saying in response to their questions was true. His summation of who Jesus was, was true. This man gave me my sight. He could not have done it if he was not from God. Therefore, he is from God. He is a prophet. But they kept saying, we know, we know, we know. But by their own admission, they don't know who Jesus is. So the man responds in verse 25, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. Because he doesn't know Jesus. He just met the guy, right? He doesn't know his lifestyle. He hasn't walked with him. I don't know if he's a sinner or not. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. So like many of us, this man was not an educated rhetorician or theologian. He was simply a man who had an encounter with Jesus that would change him. But we don't see the man staying at that basic level of belief. The Holy Spirit is not only giving him courage to stand up to the Pharisees, he is growing the man in wisdom and in truth. So when asked, how did Jesus open your eyes? The man humorously responds in verse 27, I already told you, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? So their response begins to show their frustration towards this man who hours earlier was sitting on the side of a street begging for money, but now who is holding his own as a disciple of Jesus against these educated Pharisees. In verse 28, we're told they ridiculed him. You are that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciple. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. So their new argument is this, my teacher is better than your teacher. We don't know where he's from, but we know that God spoke to Moses, therefore we can't follow him, we have to follow Moses. But while they claim to follow Moses, they don't actually listen to him. So again, going back to the previous episode with the healing of the paralytic man, back in John 5, 39, Jesus said, you pour over, the, he's speaking to the Pharisees, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me, but you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. And a little further in verse 45, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, the very one that they're claiming they follow, the very one they claim to be a disciple of. He's going to be the one who accuses them. Because on him you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. So if they had been pouring through the Old Testament scriptures with the light of, that God gives, they would have seen clearly who Jesus was. It's all poured out in there. It, Moses writes about him. Isaiah writes prolifically about him. We see that Jesus is spoken of in the Old Testament, but these Pharisees weren't willing to see it because it didn't follow the narrative that they wished to follow. So it's with this logic that the man responds to his accusers in verse 30. 
This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. So we go a, an uneducated, blind beggar to now he is using their own arguments against them. No one has ever seen anything like this before. If anyone was going to heal someone like me and allow me to be able to see, he must be from God. I was healed, therefore he must be from God. If you want to know where he's from, which is the question that they have, we don't even know where he's from, well, first you must believe that he healed me and is thus from God. Start with the fact that he opened my eyes. We know that only God could heal a blind person in this way, and we know that God only listens to those who fear him and do his will. Therefore, or there has never been anyone who has been healed like this before. Thus, there has been no one who has been like this Jesus. Therefore, ergo, vis-a-vis, he is from God. That's where Jesus is from. The Pharisees did not like the results of this logic because they couldn't defeat it. He had put them in a corner. And so, instead of dealing with the argument itself, they pull a power play. They jump back into answering his questions this way in verse 34. You were born entirely in sin. Now, this is going back to what the disciples originally had asked. That assumption that if he was blind, it was because he had sinned or his parents had sinned. You were born entirely in in sin. And they threw him out seemingly not just out of the room, but out of the synagogue. He was now pushed out on his own. And that brings us to the last section, beginning in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do not see will become blind. I'm sorry, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. So in this final section of the story, Jesus hears what had happened to the man, and he goes out to find him. And he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man said, who is he? Jesus says, you've seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. This formerly blind man had seen Jesus when others who were actually seeing around him, they were the ones blind to who Jesus was. They were still in the dark. So remember back to John's intro in chapter 1. In verse 4 he says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And then in 1 verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, 
to those who believe in his name, who are born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. This formerly blind man recognized and received. John said Jesus was coming to his people and they would not recognize and receive him. But this man recognized and received Jesus for who he said he was. He couldn't find a way around the fact that Jesus was from God. So given the choice to believe when Jesus says, do you believe? He does. And we're told that he worshiped at Jesus' feet. And Jesus responds in verse 39. I came into the world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. So while the man saw Jesus with the eyes of faith, we see that there were others who remained in the dark in their sin. There were Pharisees around, even as Jesus is having this conversation with him. There were Pharisees listening in, and they asked Jesus, we aren't blind too, are we? And Jesus responds, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. Now, here he's not talking about physical blindness, but the blindness of their heart to seeing who Jesus was, that he was sent from God. He was bringing the words of God to his people. He was calling them to repent and to follow him, and they were blind to it. He said, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Because the problem was, they were claiming they saw, but they were saying he was not the one sent from God. So their sin was still remaining on them. Because they would not repent and believe. Later when he dies on the cross, they would not have had any hope because they were not, the one, they were not following the one who came to die for their sins. So the Pharisees insisted, though they had controvertible evidence to the contrary, that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. They refused to turn to him, and they stayed in the dark. Jesus had come to be a light in a dark place, but these who already felt like they were followers of God refused to see the light that was shining right in front of them. So, in conclusion, I think it's wise to ask a few questions here. First, why did this man believe while the others didn't? As some of you have dealt with theology, as you've learned more from the scriptures, you've asked yourself this question before. Why do some believe and some not believe? It wasn't because this man had a better theological training. It wasn't because his parents were really good at helping him memorize Bible verses and catechize him. It obviously wasn't because he followed the right political or religious party. It was because the light had shone on him and he didn't turn to the darkness. The, the light of the world, the word of God, all these words that John struggles with to try to display who Jesus is, the man had conf was confronted with that and he didn't turn away. It was because the light shone on him and he didn't turn to the darkness. So don't leave this story without seeing the compassion that Jesus had on this man and that is also offered to you. You were born blind. Now, this morning, you, many of you, all of you maybe, see with your eye sockets, but we were all born to where we could not see the truth of the gospel. If you are seeing this morning, it's because the light has shone in you. If you are not seeing this morning, if you don't trust Jesus this morning for your righteousness, then you are still blind to the fact that you are in sin and you need a Savior. And he is the only one who can save you. 
So second point of application here, short and sweet, who are you listening to? Are you listening to blind guides? The Pharisees were very educated, but they were missing the mark. They had no idea who they were dealing with. They didn't know who they were, what they were talking about. Are you following blind guides? Are you following your truth? Also a blind guide is yourself. Are you following algorithms? Are you letting Google News and YouTube and other things on the web, on social media, dictate what you believe and what you think? Or are you going to the light to learn what you are to believe? Examine these things in the light. Third, are you like the Pharisees seeking to stay in the dark because of a cultural rope holding you there? Is it just easier for you to not have to make big changes in your life that would have to come? We heard this morning in Sunday school, things will have to change for someone. Your friends may have to go. Your lifestyle may have to go. Are you letting that hold you in the darkness? What in your life is keeping you from knowing and worshiping Jesus? Is it your music? Is it what you're watching on TV? Is it what you're taking part in with your friends? The Pharisees all had really convincing reasons. The man's parents had good cultural reasons. And you may have what feels like really good reasons for not following Jesus. But Jesus shows up in this story just as he shows up in your life to bring about what he calls judgment. By his very presence and actions in the world, you are seeing those who are in the dark and those who are in the light. That's what he means here by judgment in this particular case. He comes and you instantly see who's in the light, who's in the dark. Who's blind and who sees? Now we all know John 3.16, but let's read that passage in context of seeing what happened in chapter 9 here. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Let's not stop there. Let's continue. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. Like walking into a kitchen in Florida and flipping on the lights and roaches scatter everywhere because they hate the light. Sorry, I just made you squeamish. But that's the way we are with our sin. When the light comes on, we try to hide it, we try to get away from it, and we're definitely not going to go for the light. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, John tells us, or Jesus tells us in John. Anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Not so that they can come and show how good they are in the light. It's so that God can be worshiped rightly when they come into the light. That's what happened to this man. This man was born blind, why? 
so that the works of God could be magnified in the light of his healing. So I encourage you and I plead with you now, stop being drawn by your sin. Come into the light and let your sin be exposed so that you can indeed worship God rightly. This Jesus who gave sight to this blind man can help you see as well. Let's pray.